0: The Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab number 303 for Monday, December 13th, 2010. (laughs)
1: Welcome to the Mac Observers Mac Geekab, the show where you write the agenda by sending in your questions, your tips, your comments. We do our best to answer them, share them, and overall bring you an enhanced Mac life. From Durham, New Hampshire, I am Dave Hamilton. <laughs> enhanced.
0: That's right. Yeah, oh, that's good. Yeah, um, I'm with you. And this is John F. Braun here in Fairfield, Connecticut.
1: Outstanding. So, uh, you know what? Let's dive right in, and uh, let's see what Pete has to ask us, John.
2: Hey, Don, uh, John, Dave, and uh, Pilot Pete. Uh, this is Pete from uh, very cold, early morning Wisconsin. Uh, my family just switched over from PC to Mac, and uh, we're pretty used to the, the Microsoft software. Um have been uh, pretty pleased with, with Apple's mail.app. But uh, I goofed up somewhere, I guess, and got rid of the, uh, the preview pane or the reading pane that is, uh, that is uh, a default view in Mail.app. was wondering how to get it back. I've been poking around in preferences and, and menu items, but maybe I'm just not seeing it. I uh, was wondering if you guys could help me. I'm on 10.6.5 uh, now on a, uh, uh, the newest version of the Mac Mini. Um, in Outlook ms outlook the uh reading pane was a, a menu item that you could bring back and i just i'm assuming that it's probably the same way in, in mail.app i just haven't been able to find it Uh again hope you guys can help me uh keep up the good work love the podcast have yourselves a great day thanks pete
1: and you have a great day too all right so you are right that in outlook which is in which is new to the mac uh this is the first time we've had outlook proper for the mac uh it is a menu option in Microsoft Office 2011, and that is the view menu reading pane. And then you get to choose whether the reading Pane is to the right of your message view below your message view or hidden in mail, though. You don't have a menu option and you don't have all three of those options, at least not by default, but you can adjust the size of the view. And if you adjust it all the way down to where it hides, then it makes it go away. So my guess, Pete is that you have uh, you or someone in the house has grabbed the little bar that used to sit between the viewing pane and the, the message list and drag, and has dragged it all the way to the bottom of the screen. And it's still there. In fact, you'll see the little bar with one little dot in the center. And if you just go down and grab that and drag up, you should see your preview pane reappear. That's that's my story, John.
0: And I think you should st- stick to it. I'm gonna. Yeah, I ran into the same thing. I, I I was exhaustively looking through every menu, and there is not a choice. Now, of course, the other way is you know you could double click on the message, and it'll bring up a separate window with the message, but that's a real drag. So sure. Um, but yeah, that kind of surprised me. And yeah, you're right. The the little dot is the uh, is the giveaway. Now, now if you don't see that, then I don't know what's going on, but I, that has to be it. I think I did that once accidentally. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, you know, so in, when I looked in outlook, I, I noticed, as I said, that there's right uh, below and hidden. Now mail doesn't give you the option for right, but there is a mail extension that does. And it's called letterbox. Uh, and we'll put a link to it in the show notes, but it's at Harnley.net H A R N L Y. Dot net. So we will uh, we'll link to that. So if you want that kind of three pane across view of mail where you've got your mailboxes uh, in one column and then a third, a second column with the your message list and then a third column that actually contains the message, uh, you can do that. So we'll uh, we'll link you to that. You know, um, so. When you create a user account moving moving on here I, I noticed something when I was messing around at the house this weekend, and when you create a user account on your mac the uh, there's two things that happen: one, you put your name in your full name with spaces and whatever you want to have in there, and then from that, your Mac creates and you can edit this initially before you create the account. it creates what's called your short username uh, the short username is the real name that Uh, Unix sees under the hood. If you use fast user switching, it's also the thing that would appear up in the upper right corner of your screen. I guess you can choose whether it's the short username or the long name that appears up there. But, uh, and if you spend any time at the terminal that it's, it's your username there as well. Because of this, it's very, uh, It's very difficult to change that short username. You can change your long username very, very easily. You just go into accounts and and you do it. Uh, But your short username is not very easy to change. I had reason to do this recently. My 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 kids, we had set up one account for the kids on the iMac that's in the house and that worked fine for a number of years. But now, you know, each kid has their own iTunes and their own email. And so it just made sense to have a separate account for, for each child. And so I needed, so I created one for my son and then I basically left the one that was there for my daughter. But you know, it was called the short username on it was kiddos. It wasn't her name. And I thought, well, it'd be better to have it for her name because then she can sync her stuff between the, the little um, Dell hackintosh computer that, that she has. And you know, we want everything to be consistent. And so I set about learning how to do this. And sure enough, there is a support article at uh, support.apple.com talking about how to change user's short name or home directory name. And they give us a series of steps that essentially the, the concept and we'll, we'll link to this. But the concept is quite simple. They say, look, create your um, uh, make. Well, let's see. What, what do we do here? We go to the users folder. And move, rename the directory. So whenever, in your users folder, you'll see a single directory for each user and it's named the short username. So what you do is you just log in as a different user and change the name of that directory to uh, from whatever the old short username is to whatever that you want the new one to be. And then once you've made that change, you go into uh, accounts and system preferences, You create a new user account and you give it that same short username that you just renamed that directory to. It'll pop up a little window that says, hey, uh, a folder in the user's folder already exists with that name. Would you like to use that? And if you say yes, it goes through and totally fixes all the, the permissions and everything. Now, the one trick to this is Apple's instructions don't bring you to the terminal. They leave you fully in the in the graphic user interface which is great except it requires you to enable the root user and then you got to go disable the root user when you're done if you're willing to do this in the terminal uh you don't have to go through the step of enabling or disabling the root user you can just simply uh use the mv command in the terminal to rename it now you have to preface that by sudo s-u-d-o in order to have enough privileges to rename another user's account But, uh, but it, but it worked totally fine. And that's what I did. And it took all of about four minutes to do this process that I, you know, when I started down the path, I thought, well, you know, I'm going to spend an hour figuring this out. And uh, sure enough, I was done, you know, certainly less than five minutes later. So I figured I would share that out here.
0: Okay. Now is this short username? Is that, um, so as many may know, but if you don't, so if you're in the account system preference and you right click or option click or whatever, you want to do here and you bring up advanced options. Yes. Is, a, is what I see here listed at our account name. Is that the short username? Mm hmm. Okay. But you don't want to change
1: that in system preferences because right, right. it'll break everything. It, it doesn't, all it does is change it there. It doesn't make any other changes to the system and it'll totally Understood. blow it away. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I know, uh, I mean, they, they even say in advanced options, it's one of the few, I think, dialogue boxes that has in big capital red letters warning. Yeah don't touch this because you're, uh, you're doing to mess something up. Right. I mean, you know, speak of, speaking of terminal, you know, I, I I was doing something the other day. I was trying to do a little, a uh, little, little programming here, looking at a communication framework called uh, ACE. And so I was messing around with the terminal Dave. And, you know, normally as you may know, uh, I believe that the default shell, um, what is it now? Is it tcsh? I think if you're on the latest, uh, I think it's TCSH. I don't, I I've always
1: used TCSH. So I don't, remember what the default shell is but i think it is now the default
0: is tcsh yeah and of course you can find out because if you're in the terminal and you type ps process status you'll see the name of the shell that you're running but how do you change that and and i found one way to change it so of course there's the unix chs command do that though i found another way of doing it Dave. how's that um if you go to terminal yes preferences and in the startup section you'll see at the bottom of that window it says shells open with And it'll say default login shell, which I think is what happens if you do CHSH. But then it also has another option there, command. Huh. And so what I did is I put slash bin slash bash. And now when I open my terminal, I get bash just because I like bash. So that's a
1: really geeky Unix thing that we've done here. And we usually save the really geeky Unix stuff toward the end of the show. But uh, yeah, but no, this is good. The, The one thing I will point out since we're heading down this path is this only changes it for when you access your machine via the terminal app. Right. If you SSH into your computer uh, via remote access, then you will get whatever your default shell is, um, which which would then be tcsh if you have
0: not changed it. So, yeah. The reason I mark. needed to do this is because I was dealing with some software that I think assumed the presence of Bash or it didn't play well with tcsh. Yep. So once I was able to figure this out then things got a little better. It's, it's still giving me some weird errors, but we'll talk about that at another yeah, time.
1: Yeah, it, it, but it is worth saying. So, um, you know, we're talking about Bash and TCSH and CSH and all that. Uh, the original shell in Unix was simply a program called SH for shell. And shell is the command line that you get when you go into the terminal which used to be the only way to access a unix computer to interact with it right mm-hmm. so so that 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 that's what a shell is and then there have been various um deviations of that uh, main you know shell initially there was c shell which was then csh and then there was the t shell which is tcsh and then there was the born again shell which is bash right I am born again. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and there were others as well, but that, you know, it, it, we're getting, we, we're, we're, we're dancing at the edge of Unix lore here and we're, we're, we're going to stay right where we were um, because we're not going to, all right,
0: well, go deep, well, so let's get off the edge. Let's get off Dave, the edge and may, maybe, maybe go go to Chris with something that I think is a bit more uh, tangible <laughs> or relevant or yeah. both.
1: Or both. So Chris writes, uh, I recently purchased a 27-inch iMac that my wife and I both use, and we each have a user account. I also purchased an Airport Extreme because we want to have our one terabyte OWC external hard drive on the network so we can share our files, our iPhoto library, and our iTunes library. In addition, we have a Mac Mini and a MacBook Pro in the house that I want to point at the external hard drive to access files, iTunes, and iPhoto libraries. The Mac Mini and MacBook Pro each only have one user account, but each have their own iTunes and iPhoto libraries on their local hard drives. As you can probably imagine, my goal is to merge the iTunes and iPhoto libraries from these two machines to the external hard drive and point all three computers at those libraries. I have Googled around trying to find the best way to merge libraries, but I haven't really found a unified theory on the best way to go about it. As much as I hate to say it, it seems to me it might be best to create a new library on the external hard drive, share the locations of the music and photos from the Mac Mini and MacBook Pro across the network, uh, add photos and music manually from those machines, and then point all three computers at the new library. Uh, It seems like a lot of work, so my first question is, can you make a recommendation on the best way to merge libraries? Uh, And then he talks about uh, things that he's tried doing. So... Uh, and then uh, uh, let's see. Yeah. And then he said, uh, so the, one of the things I've tried was to simply copy the iTunes folder uh, from username slash music slash iTunes from my MacBook pro to the external hard drive this way. Well, this way I bring along the library file, album artwork and music and video. This is around 25 gigs of data while logged into my user account on the iMac. I pointed library the iTunes to that library file and it worked. I could see all of my music and podcasts. So hmm. that's good. Yep. Oh, and, that, and there's nothing wrong with that. That will work. I've done that. It, it works totally fine for one user at a time. You cannot have multiple versions of iTunes loaded, um, but it will work. So my next step was to switch to my wife's user account via fast user switching and repeat the process. When I tried to point iTunes to the library on the external hard drive, no folders appear. And the drive has a red icon with a white bar. Trying to access the drive via the finder says that I don't have permission to access the external drive on my wife's account. What am I missing? And please don't say it's something simple. All right. Well, actually, so we'll answer, uh, in slightly reverse order because it is, it is pretty simple. Let's, let's talk about the second part of your process and then we'll talk about merging libraries and then we'll talk about why you might not want to do that. Um, so the, uh, So when you are logged in to your account on your Mac and then you go and connect to a shared network resource, you are connecting to that resource with the privileges of the account that you're logged in with. Right. Or at the very least, Mm -hmm. the, the login is attached to your account. So if you then fast user switch over to another account on that machine, well, that account doesn't have privileges to attach to this network resource. And Mac OS 10 doesn't, you know, let one resource share amongst accounts, but it'll show it because it's a mounted drive. So you get exactly what Chris described, where you see that it's connected, but it doesn't work. The way to the way to deal with it is to simply re log in. So once you're in your wife's account, connect to your airport extreme base station by going into the shared section, say connect and log in. And once you log in and attach to that drive again, it'll appear and you can mess with it and you can do whatever you want. So that that's the answer there. But then you want to merge things, right? So let's start with iPhoto. Um, for me, I always use iPhoto Library Manager from Fat Cat Software, and that will let you control exactly what you're merging uh, you can have two libraries, three libraries, four libraries. You can pick which one's going to launch, but you can also merge them together. Uh, and and it works really, really well. But but, John, I think you've got a better idea.
0: Yes. And so I tried this. So, of course, I have two different machines and they, they slightly changed uh, the way iPhoto appears. So on my Leopard machine, it's actually in the pictures folder. There's then another folder called uh, I think it's iPhoto library. Is it a, now that's not a folder? That's a package, right? Oh no 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 on Leopard. Oh, or, uh, Leopard. I'm sorry. Okay. No, it's not. It's not so much Leopard, but it's the old. So on this machine, I'm running the older version of iLife as well. Okay. Um, but I don't think it makes a difference. Okay. And I'll tell you why. Because what, what I did is I'm like, you know, let me try this because I've iPhoto is pretty darn smart. I think when you try to drag stuff, uh, I just drag things over the iPhoto icon in the dock. Okay. And dragging pictures, it it just imports them. You know, it actually has a little that there is a special folder somewhere in, um, in either the package or the folder. I think it's called import. Um, and that's actually how the iFi and some other devices will kind of sneak photos in there. So whether it's a program putting stuff in there or if you drag things over, I think it goes there and then it, and then it brings it in. But what I did, Dave, is I took this folder from my Leopard machine and I dragged it on top of the iPhoto icon on my MacBook Pro, which I'm running the latest uh, iPhoto and, and iLife. And I get a little dialogue. It says, oh, by the way, this iPhoto library needs to be upgraded to work with this version of iPhoto. Your photo library will not be readable by pre- previous versions, blah, 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 So what that's telling me, so I didn't do it because I didn't want to, yeah. Um, right. <laughs> if you're going to do something like this, and I, yeah, if you're going to do anything like this, make sure you back up all of your, uh, either your iTunes folder or your iPhoto uh, folders or packages totally. uh, before you do this. Yep. Um, but yeah, so it came up and it said, uh, so, the fact that that dialogue came up tells me that it's smart enough to take the, the whole ball of wax and import the whole thing. Now, now I don't know. And I, I think it's going to import at the very least, it's going to import the photos. I don't know if it's going to be smart enough to import uh, the albums and the events and stuff like that, though it may be. I mean, you know, those files are in the older one. So I would suggest, especially since it sounds like you, you basically want to bring everything together in one big blob from separate blobs, I would suggest that as, as an initial step again, after making a backup of, right. of the original in, in case, uh, you know, things go out of control. So that huh. for iPhoto, that's what I would suggest.
1: And if that works, you saved your money and didn't have to buy a i iPhoto library manager. So that's good.
0: Yeah. though It sounds like from what you said that that does give you a level of control. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah. But if, if your method
1: works and all he's looking to do is merge everything, then it, doesn't matter as long as it preserves mm-hmm. albums, right? Cause that might be to me, that would make a big difference. I I want to, you know, if I've bothered to create albums in iPhoto, I want to keep them even.
0: If I'm yeah. Busy. And since, since, and since I see them, I mean, you'll see them in the, in either the package or the folder structure, you'll see definitions for the albums. I'm I'm going to think that it's smart enough to bring those in because those have been, uh you know, parts of iPhoto for quite a while. Things right. like events, I think that's fairly new. So, hmm. but yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to assume. You know, I think I. am going to take my advice and I'm going to try it. All right, I'm going to take one for the team here. Okay, just don't do <laughs> and it. Hopefully,
1: right, it, don't do it right now.
0: No, 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 no. And <laughs> and hopefully, it's going to. And I've also noticed that iPhoto tends to be fairly smart about not letting you do duplicates. And that if you try to bring over a photo with the same exact same name, I think that's where the, the intelligence ends. But it'll say, "Hey, there's already a photo called dsc zero, zero 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 um, you don't want to do that to you. And I think you can actually do a batch operation saying no, ignore all duplicates, but bring everybody else in. Ah. So, so I think uh, iPhoto at a a high level will protect you from shooting yourself in the foot. That's good. Backups will always
1: protect you. So take, take that advice too. Yes. Now for merging iTunes, uh, things get a little more interesting. You, you can copy all the songs from one iTunes. Tunes library into another, and if you don't care about playlists, then that would work just fine. But if you want to maintain playlists and all of that good stuff, uh, I, you know, Tune Ranger used to work. I, I'm not sure if it would anymore, but but I'm pretty sure SuperSync at SuperSync.com it would be your answer here because that appears to to be able to to really kind of pull all that stuff together. So so that's where I would go with it. Um, that I don't I don't think. The pro, my problem, my hesitation here is I don't know that you're going to be happy with any of these solutions because the way iPhoto works and the way iTunes work is that only one app may open any one library. So if you have it on a shared drive, that's fine. But you can't open iTunes from your computer and from your wife's computer simultaneously. Same goes for iPhoto and, and everything else. So. Really think this through before you do this, you know, I is not bad because it uh, to have multiple copies because it it allows that whole ease of sharing and you can copy photos back and forth. Of course, you wind up with with multiple uh, uh, copies of the same photo. And actually now iTunes with its uh, home sharing and it allows you to connect what up to five computers or something like that, um, that's that tends to work fairly well, too. So you, you may find a better way of doing this, but, uh, but if you, if merging actually works for you, then this is how you would do it. Makes sense. Got it, John. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. Barebones software is our first sponsor of the show at barebones.com. They make, uh, they make quite a few products. One of them is Yojimbo. And actually it's not just one of them. It's two of them. Because they have Yojimbo for your Mac and Yojimbo for the iPad. Now, what is Yojimbo? Yojimbo is a piece of software. and It's an organizer. It's an electronic organizer. Pulls in. You can put any kind of data in here you want. Pictures, PDFs, text snippets, audio files, video files, web pages, web clippings. uh, You name it, it's going to fit in here. And the cool thing is you've got just a library uh, and as you dump things in, it's automatically adding this stuff to the library, tagging the date that it came with. Uh, You can name it. Of course you can rename it after the fact, but you can then go and create collections. So, you know, for me, for example, I have a Mac Observer collection. I have a Mac GeekGab collection. I have a personal collection. I have a little text uh, tech tips collection. And as I pull stuff in, I can categorize it and I can even have it show me show me the things that aren't in any collections. Now, things can be in multiple collections. So I might have a Mac Gab thing to talk about here. Uh, but then once I'm done talking about it here, I remove it from the Mac Gab collection, but it might live on in my uh, tech tips collection because I want to, uh, you know, I want it to uh, because it was a tech tip that you know, was valuable to me. So I, I keep that there again, not just text, but audio, uh, video, PDFs, pictures of any kind, all can be organized in here. It's a really great way to organize all the other stuff. You know, you've got your email, you've got your calendar, you've got your contacts, but but there's, there's other stuff that you wind up needing to hold on to. A lot of people keep a folder of text files on their desktop, some people, you know, pump all this data into the stickies app. Um, you know, Jimbo is a, a much more robust way of managing all that data. And of course, it syncs. You can use Dropbox to sync it from Mac to Mac. You can use Me to sync it from Mac to Mac. And if you have an iPad, you can buy the iPad version of the app and sync all the data from your Mac to the iPad. Now, right now, the iPad app is a one way sync. So it's read only on the iPad. Uh, and that, I believe they're working on potentially opening that up a little bit more, but, uh, but right now it's, it is read only on the iPad. Now, Yojimbo, Jimbo, of course it's available as a free trial download. Once you're hooked, it's 39 bucks uh, for in the uh, standard license. If you are a student or a teacher or otherwise educationally affiliated, it's 29 bucks. And the iPad app is nine ninety nine. So, you can check all this out at barebones.com. And now it's time to talk to Brian or to listen or to read what Brian says. Brian actually has two questions. so We're going to give him a twofer here, John. He says, I've got a slightly irritating problem with how my iPod touch handles podcasts. I have a few podcasts in which I stay current and listen to every week, like the Mac Geek app. Uh I don't have a problem with these. But for other podcasts where I have multiple unplayed episodes at any given point in time, the iPad will end one episode and continue right to the next. I would like for it to stop after the initial podcast is over and return to the menu. Instead, I've been trying to pause it as it finishes, but depending on my timing, it will either mark the previous one as unplayed or unwatched or mark the subsequent one as started. And it's annoying me. I've read a little into it and it appears that it used to be the way I prefer, but enough people wanted it to change that Apple did. So Uh, is there a way to get it to stop after each episode? Uh, I've dug into this and I don't know the answer. So I'm hoping that perhaps, John, either you do or one of our listeners, because, of course, you are all podcast listeners, uh, might have uh, had the same preferences, Brian, and figured out a way around this. I I even checked Podcaster, the third party app, John. But I, even inside that I couldn't figure out if there was a way to get it to stop uh after each after each episode. So I I don't have the magic answer for that one, but I'm hoping the rest of uh the rest of our community might do you do you have any thoughts on on how to get podcasts to uh to to bend to
0: Brian's will, John? I I have lots of thoughts, but none on this specific topic. Okay. No, I, 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 I agree. I've run into the same thing. Yeah. And, and yeah, then, you, then you get that edge condition where you either, yeah, don't quite finish the prior one or, you know, wouldn't it be nice if it was more TiVo-like? I noticed TiVo is real smart about kind of knowing if you're at the beginning or end of something and, and dealing with it accordingly. So Right, 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 right. Feature request for, uh, and the, yeah, if you're like in the last minute of something, it pretty much considers, well, yeah, I think you probably watched it already. Yeah. <laughs> right, right.
1: Uh, okay. So that's, that's question number one, perhaps a, a geek challenge out to our listening audience. And then question number two from Brian, is there a way to disable third party menu bar items on the Mac? Some have options to get rid of them, but others don't. I find this may also be unsolvable, but annoying. So I write to help you help me out. All right. So the answer is yes and no. Uh, Huh? (laughs) So I'll, uh, I'll tell you about the yes part. And John, you can tell us about the no part. Uh, The menu bar, anything that is a true menu bar item can be removed or moved by simply using the command key. Now this includes third party stuff that is true menu bar items. And of course, all of Apple stuff, Uh, you know, volume airport, VPN, mobile me, time machine, all that stuff. Even the clock can be moved around. So what you do is you go up to the menu bar and you hold down the command key uh, and then click on whatever item you want. You can start dragging it around. And if you drag it left or right in the menu bar, you can control where it appears. And other things will kind of move out of your way and, and make room for you. If you drag it out of the menu bar and let go, it'll get a little you'll see a little poof of smoke and away it goes. That's it. It's off now. All that's happened is it's gone to, you know, presumably like, you know, time machine for example, if if you did that and you wanted it back, you just go into system preferences time machine and click check the little box that says show time machine status in the menu bar and back it comes. So that's what's going to work for most of the stuff including stuff like iStat menus and uh and other third-party widgets whose only job is to display stuff in the menu bar. However, If driven by an application that's running, could be different. So, John, I turn to
0: you. Is that the answer? Well, uh, let me give some background here. So, you know, I I love, you know, as I was talking about the whole terminal and and, uh, uh, shell thing, I like to get my hands dirty and dig into the works here. Right. So I started scratching my head and saying, you know, where does all this stuff live? How does the OS know what should be up in the menu bar? Right. And I found it. So if you go to your home folder, library, preferences, com.apple.systemui, user interface, I guess, server.plist. Yep. And if you look in there, there's a key called menu extras. And you know what I found there? I found some, but not all, right. of the items that I see in my menu bar. And then I started looking and trying to figure out which... Uh, and. It was funny, Dave, because there was a hundred percent correlation between the items that were not in that P list and the items that I couldn't move. Mm-hmm. And some of them were Dropbox, which is an application, um, right? Total Finder, which I guess is an application. It is. Yep. Uh, iFi Center. Yep. Check. And something that I use called Smart Reporter. Check. So, so I guess there. So I guess, as you're saying, so these applications, I guess, are using a different. Well, as as you're implying, so they're using a different mechanism to stuff things into the menu bar than the system UI server right. mechanism, right?
1: Because they're 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 dependent on the app running as an app, um, and 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 so they that that's how that works, and and I believe that fits within Apple's spec. There there used to be apps that were kind of stuffing things into the menu bar in 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 a way that cheated, but Snow Leopard pretty much blocked all that out and and made people say, hey, look, you either have to work truly as a menu bar icon and let us, you know, m- let it let yourself be managed as a menu bar icon, which also means being removed. Or if you want it associated, if you want it there all the time that your app is running, then it, you know, you got to do it that way. And, and so that's that's how it works. I don't I don't know the particulars because I've never coded any of that stuff, but but that's.
0: Now, what's odd, though, is that one of the items that I found in the P-list, Dave, was something that caught my attention because it's not one of the items that you can even move around, but it's something called Menu Cracker. And I remember, uh, I think in prior versions of Mac OS X, um, Menu Cracker was something that uh, would—so I think Apple at one point really discouraged you or prevented you from putting things in the menu bar. They didn't offer a nice way to do it, and I think Menu Cracker was an open-source— deal that um that would allow you to do that and then i think they they don't allow or it doesn't run properly under snow leopard based on what you told me now i don't know why it appears in the list here it actually seems to be part of istat it appears part of the istat extras so i don't know if they put that there to for future use or i don't know why it's there
1: yeah I, i i'm i'm a little confused about that too unless they simply you know kind of built menu cracker for their own purposes in a way that, that fits in with whatever works in snow leopard. I mean, obviously iStat menus works in snow leopard. So they've, they've figured that out. Um, but yeah, all the old menu cracker stuff didn't. So, um, so there you go. So yeah, if you want to remove stuff, grab it. And if you can move it, you can drag it out. If not, if it's something like say Dropbox, uh, that's up to the application vendor to decide how they want it to work. Now Dropbox there is no way to have Dropbox running and not have it appear in your menu bar, to my knowledge. However, something like Text Expander, uh, there is—you can have it in your menu bar if you want, or you don't have to. Uh, I believe Keyboard Maestro is the same way. Uh, you can have it in your menu bar, but you don't have to in it, and that's just the way the app preferences are set up. So that's that's my story, John. Uh, You know, you mentioned system UI server, so I'm going to throw out a bit of troubleshooting here. Hmm. System UI server uh, sounds like it's a lot more than it is. I mean, from that term, the first time I saw it, I thought it controlled like the whole user interface, right? Because it is the system UI server stands to reason. Really, all it does is control your menu bar. And so and, and that's good to know, because There, there have been times when I've been running my Mac and suddenly I realize my menu bar is frozen. The clock's not ticking. I can't click on anything. When I float up there, my mouse goes from a pointer to a a spinning wheel or a clock or whatever. And, and it's stuck. And of course, the only way you can get out of that is to, to reboot. However, if you go and launch activity monitor and find system UI server in the list Uh, now you'd have to choose all process. Oh no, I guess system UI server runs as the user. So you don't even have to choose all processes, but if you go and find system UI server in the list, click on it and then click quick, click the quit process button and then click force quit. Uh, It is one of these processes that the system will restart automatically. So it's like you kill it off when it comes back, it rebuilds your menu and uh, typically everything's okay. And you can save yourself a, uh, a reboot. So and and with Unix, you're pretty safe, you know, even if one component crashes, if as long as you can get that back up and running, you're probably okay unless there's something more
0: more troublesome going on. So. the only weirdness I noticed, Dave, is that yep. I noticed in that PList file, there's also some settings for default folder ten, which I find kind of weird.
1: Yeah, default folder has the option uh of appearing in your menu bar. <sighs> uh, uh, okay. I, I have right. it turned off cause I don't care to fill my menu bar with stuff that I don't right, use right. in the menu bar. Right. You know um, but you mm-hmm. know, Dropbox is one of those things. I guess I've gotten used to it. I don't really need it there, but I don't know where mm-hmm. else I would go to mess with it if it wasn't there. So, uh, you know, it is handy to look up and see if it's spinning and that tells me if it's syncing or doing something. So I, I, I've, I've, I've worked it into my life such that I've accepted its place in my menu bar. All right. Moving on to Jerry, Jerry writes, I'm looking into buying a new Apple airport router and giving my old one to my daughter to use at her place. My question is, will I see any difference in speed using the new router with gigabit Ethernet over my old one with just 100 megabit Ethernet? I connect my iMac by Ethernet 100 percent of the time. Okay, so the answer is yes or no. Well, well.
0: Or well, no. He wasn't very specific no. about wh- where will he see in what situation will he see a difference in speed, Dave?
1: Right. So uh, we'll start with your Internet access, because that's what most people are using their their network uh, capabilities for. And in that sense, all you need to do to answer the question is look at the maximum speed That you have contracted to get from your internet service provider. Now, for me, what I'm talking about there is the the upstream and downstream I have contracted with Comcast. I have the cheapest Comcast option I can get and I get 12 megabits down and two megabits up. However, Mm -hmm. I also have the ability to burst. And when I burst on the downstream, I can get as much as 30. And on the upstream, I get as much as like four, sometimes five for a short period of time then they ratchet me back down but you know for me that's still well and under 100 megabits so from an internet access standpoint i wouldn't notice a difference between 100 megabit and a, a thousand megabit or a gigabit uh ethernet router now jerry that's
0: not dave i mean who offers 100 i mean even 100 megabits should be good i mean who offers hundred megabit internet? I, I believe your ISP does. I think oh. they offer
1: a one hundred one, <laughs> don't they?
0: That's right. Yeah. No, it's just.
1: Yeah, and yeah. I think Comcast does too in some areas. I can't remember if we have it here or not. I know we have a fifty megabit option, which is I had it for a couple of days just because I, you know, I needed to see, and then I realized this is stupid. I mean, it wasn't very much money more. I don't know, it was another twenty bucks yeah. a month or something. But it was like, come on, who needs
0: this? Yeah, That's ours awesome. is a optimum online. Ultra and it, they actually—I don't know why they even bother—that they say it's one hundred one megabits right. per second downstream, and I, along with the ultra performance, you pay, as far as I can tell, an ultra price. I think course. it's a hundred dollars extra, okay, uh, per month. Okay. So uh if you need it, they got it, and you're you're going to pay for it.
1: Yeah. How? Okay. So you know, so that's the that's the answer. So chances are, Jerry, that from an internet speed standpoint, no, it won't make a lick of difference. Uh, and you're in the same boat I am, however, I very much see a difference running gigabit Ethernet here, and in fact, I run it everywhere, including on the line that goes between the house and the office. Bless its little heart uh because I don't want to have to redig it ever ever um and the reason is because a hundred megabit goes um you know uh is is fine for internet but I want to back up to my time capsule and I'm doing that constantly with all of my computers and it's a network device. And so by going full gigabit here, I get to take advantage of the, you know, I mean, the hard drives, the hard drive in that thing runs at a maximum of about 35, 350, maybe 400 megabits or 30 megabytes per second. And it depends Mm -hmm. on the types of files that are being backed up and and all of that. But, uh, Mm But yeah, so it makes a very big difference to me on my internal network. It's just when I talk to the outside world, you know, if, you know, 10 megabits, not fast enough anymore, but 100 is on the outside world. And in fact, you'll see a lot of routers Um, for a while. Linksys was making routers where they had a, a you know, they've got five Ethernet ports on them, one for to go to the outside world and then a four port, you know, essentially a switch built in to connect all your computers and on, and for a while, and it may still be this way, the four port switch was gigabit and the one port to the outside world was 100 megabit. Now, I don't know what hmm. kind of cost savings it made sense mm-hmm. to do mm-hmm. that. And, and that, I can't imagine that still makes sense today, but it might. You know, a 100 megabit switch is cheaper than a gigabit switch, even even at a five port level. I mean, not a lot, but. You know, they, well, actually, you know, it might, it might be almost double, right? I mean, you're still only talking about like, you know, 40 bucks or something, 30 bucks, but, but it, it, you know, there, there might be enough savings to where, you know, if you're making 10 thousands of these things, well, maybe, you know, maybe there's enough to, yeah. to make it worthwhile.
0: So, and you bring up a good point because I think uh, when I did replace my, um, and I did a restore, I believe I did the restore off of my last, uh, time capsule. And I started doing it on wireless, and then I looked at the time estimate, and I'm like, "What am I stupid?" Yeah. And I I stopped that bad boy, and I plugged one uh, Ethernet cable into the Time Capsule, and the other into the MacBook Pro, which of course both have gigabit, and it it it, it, was, it was accomplished in a matter of hours rather than days. <laughs> yes.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It, it really it can make a huge difference. Um. And and that's that's the main reason. Uh, even my MacBook Pro is on Ethernet when it's at my desk is is for that because uh, because, yeah, otherwise backups take forever. So and it's fun to, you know, be jacked into everything. That's just that still appeals to me from, <laughs> from you know, being just a geek for too long. Where's
0: well, the blinky light, too? Well, you actually don't see the blinky. Light you don't see do the you? blinky
1: light. No, I don't. I have to use. Um, that's why I that, that's the other reason. That's why I like I step menu so much. Right. Is because it gives me the blinky lights, which reminds me of, of the lights that I use, the send and receive lights I used to see on my modem mm-hmm. back in the, you know, way, way, way <laughs> long ago. <laughs> uh, I tried to explain that to my kids, you know, like, a modem. Yeah. They're like, what do you mean? You couldn't talk on the phone when you were on the computer. I'm like, no, you couldn't. And then, and then we saw war games, which they loved. Um, and, uh, and, you know, he had, they did the whole acoustic coupler thing in that movie. And I, I reminded the kids, of course, long time listeners of the geek cab know that I still own an acoustic coupler, but I showed it to them. They're like, what is this? I said, no, no. And I was on the road with that band. This is, I used, I hooked this up to
0: payphones. What Are you crazy? And, and if I recall, he was using eight inch floppies. Yes. I don't, I don't think he, right. I, I think eight inch was, was retro back. That's well, right. It's retro now. It's well, you can even
1: find one. I, I forgot they existed until you mentioned, them. <laughs> but you're right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. All Very right. Back to 2010.
1: Yeah. All right. And Bill has a comment for us. I'm not sure if we have a magic answer for, uh, for Bill or not, but he has an interesting comment. He says, I recently added a CD to my iTunes library that came in as a compilation. However, when I went to play it on my iPod, I couldn't actually I should. It it was the very best of the rascals. Uh, And he says, however, when I went to play it on my iPod, I couldn't find the rascals listed under the artists menu. As this was the only album by this group, artists would be the easiest way to find it. At least so I thought I eventually found the album under Albums, So I knew that it had made it to the iPod. This led me to compare my artists lists on my iPod to my iTunes library. I discovered that any album with the part of a compilation box checked in the info tab when looking at get info about the song does not appear on the artist list on the iPod. Once I unchecked this box, the artist appeared on the artist list on the iPod. I went through the entire library and ensured that all the artists I wanted to appear uh, were there. Often these were best of albums, although other best of albums didn't have this box checked. I tried selecting multiple tracks at once to change them en masse, but the compilation box didn't seem to be available for changing multiple songs at once. I then had to change songs one at a time, which wasn't efficient at all. Did I miss something? Okay, so uh you know, this is a little bit of a public service announcement just for, for those of you to know. Um I didn't I couldn't find anything in the settings of my iPod that would um that would have told me, you know, that, that say, look, you know, include uh, compilations in the artists list. Uh, there was nothing that I found on, uh, on mine, but uh, but I was able to change multiple tra- change the compilation status as multiple tracks. And all I did was highlight the tracks and go into get info, which is in the file menu and then go to the options tab. And then there's the part of a compilation option, and I just set that to no, and the little box next to it checked, and I said okay, and boom, away it went. So, perhaps there, there's hope for being able to do this uh, en masse for you too, Bill. But, uh, but yeah, interesting. So, for those of you that run into that, you, you'll, now you'll know why. Anything, anything else there, John? That, I got nothing. You got nothing.
0: All right. I don't think I had that in my box, actually. That one was missing. So Oh. So. Nice.
1: Like to, we'd like hey. to keep you on your toes. That's what it is. <laughs> um, I want to talk about want to talk, we have a bunch of follow-ups from show 302 from last week, but first I want to talk about our second sponsor, which is Citrix with GoTo Assist Express. Go to Assist Express in a nutshell allows you to connect to and view and control a computer remotely built for support professionals it can be used by pros and by the home user alike christmas time's coming up right uh family members are bound to get new computers clients if you're a consultant are bound to get new computers they're going to want your help because you listen to the mac geek app, so you know how to do a lot of things that they don't you don't know yet so you know one thing is uh you can tell them to listen to the show but until you get them up to speed you're on the hook to help these people out. Right. So the, the best thing you can do is, uh, is not have to leave the warm, cozy comfort of your home to do that. Now, Certainly you could get the sled out and go across the snow and, uh, and get to their house, but you're going to be cold. It's going to take your time and you can only help one person at a time that way with this, what you do is you tell them, Hey, you log into your GoToAssistExpress account. You can set one up for free for 30 days, right? So you can set it up now, get used to it, and you're golden through Christmas. Uh, You log into your account and you say, I want to create a new session with, uh, you know, Aunt Millie. And then uh, it says, great, here's Aunt Millie's URL. And you either email Aunt Millie her URL, or if she doesn't know how to uh, do that, you just call her up on the phone, get her to her web browser, and have her type in the URL. As soon as she does that, you're basically off the hook. It's going to ask her. It's going to say, hey, uh, so-and-so, you know, your, your, uh, your niece or your nephew wants to connect to your computer and help you out. Uh, Aunt Millie says, yeah, that's good by me. And boom, up on your screen comes her screen and you can control everything from as far away as you care to be. It's beautiful. John and I have tried it. It's very, very simple. There's no teaching the person on the other end how to poke holes in their firewall. There's none of that mess. You just do it. Go to assist express uh, from Citrix. You can get it for 30 days. Go to assist.com slash geek is the only way to get it for 30 days for free. That's go to assist.com slash geek. So check it out and, uh, and enjoy helping people with your feet off and the fire burning and you're good to go. You can bring your laptop right over cozy up to the hearth and, uh, and enjoy the holiday cheer. Uh, all right. <laughs> what a nice mental picture. That that was great. It is a nice mental picture. It's actually kind of what I'm thinking about doing tonight. Cause it's rainy and it's not real cold here, but it's just, you know, eh. Joel, let's see about maintenance scripts. Joel writes, Mm -hmm. Uh, so we did, we talked about maintenance scripts in the last show and, and had, and I wanted to follow up with you, John, uh, because what we talked about was some of us, i.e., me, uh, my maintenance scripts run all the time, uh, for Joel, uh, for, uh, for our listener who wrote in and also for, for you, John, you found that when you looked your systems, maintenance scripts weren't running at all. And, uh, and so we talked about some ways of fixing this back in 302. And if you need that help, go back to 302 and listen, uh, what Joel says is that regarding the periodic scripts, he found an ex uh, an excerpt from an article at the dot com that uh, that talks about the difference between shutting your Mac down overnight versus simply letting it sleep. And we won't read the whole thing here, but essentially, what these people uh, are 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 saying is that if the machine is it, it the way launch D which is the engine that's supposed to run the scripts after sleep time works is that it it has a timer that keeps going and when it decides it's time to run those scripts it goes ahead and does it however if your computer is off that timer may never get triggered so if your computer is either asleep or off a lot you may run into exactly the problem that uh, that you were seeing john that that's what these people are saying now i'm not I, I don't i don't shut my machine off for for very long if ever i mean sometimes i have to turn it off uh, you know to put ram in or do something to it but otherwise it's it's never really off it's just asleep sometimes on an airplane i'll turn it off just to save the juice from it being asleep for the day but otherwise i you know it's just hmm. asleep so so my question to you john is First of all, do you, do you shut down your, the w- whichever machine it was, your laptop, I guess that was having
0: this problem. No, no, no. Okay. I, I always, well, th- there are occasions. Mm. Well, no, this isn't, a, no, no, I'm going to say that this is, I do not believe a shutdown. So every now and then, so right now, um, a mini tail of here. So I used to have two batteries. I now have one battery. The, the problem is on a, uh, a, a flight that I took several months ago. I think it was the blog world flight. I, uh, No, it wasn't that. It was another fight. Did you
1: donate a battery to the seat back pocket in front of you?
0: Yes, I did. (laughs) Because I think I was futzing around, and what I'll do typically is, typically I'll let the battery run down all the way, and then what of course happens is the machine goes into hibernate, and then I'll put in the other battery, hit the power button, you see a little bar marching across the screen, and then it goes back to where it was. And and every now and then I'll have that happen when I'm around the house. Now, of course, I only have one battery. I ordered one from our friends at... um, OWC, but then they had a quality issue, and then they had a delay. They're eventually going to get one out to me, and it's a it's a equivalent to the Apple removable battery. But um, every now and then I'll, I'll say maybe once a week, my machine gets to the point where I don't get back to it in time to plug it back in, so it'll go into hibernate. But I don't think hibernate is considered turning off. I think hibernate no. is considered asleep. That's right. So to answer your question, um, <laughs> no, I, I rarely, if ever, uh, the, the my mode is to use it during the day. You know, I'm tweeting my heart out and doing whatever I'm doing on my computer. And then I, you know, I'll close it and put it by my bed and it's sleeping. It's a, the light is pulsing. So sure. the answer is no. I rarely, if ever, um, shut it off. Oh, and congratulations on getting uh, some more memory.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, we'll talk about that. Well, it's sort of. Yeah. Well,
0: anyway. Yeah. Keep going. But yes, I guess. Well, something. no, I took your. Uh, so, so what you suggested, Dave. So first off, I did link to the article. That the, uh, so I found the same article and it's actually in the show notes for 301. Okay, 302. Um, no, 30... Oh, so I'm sorry, yeah, duh, 302. I'm looking at 302 on the screen and subtracted one, of course. 302! <laughs> uh, yeah, these guys look pretty cool. Uh, Xlab, I think it is. that They yeah. have some pretty detailed stuff. Uh, yeah. I linked to them in the past. Uh, it looks like a good outfit. But I did what you suggested, Dave, which was pseudo launch control, load, uh, so on and so forth. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Finish it. You know, load, dash W, system, and basically points to the launch daemon for the, for the script. And then what I did a little later, you could do, well, one of two things. You could either do the terminal command to list the dot out in slash, eh, wherever the heck it was. Or I just ran Onyx, because Onyx also in the maintenance section, I think it's maintenance and then scripts. It will also show you the last date that it was run. And I noticed after I did what you said, Dave. So first I did it for the uh, the daily. Uh, daily. Yep. And then I saw, wow, the date changed. But it changed successively on on more than one occasion. So I wanted to rule out the fact that it just was one one right, off. Right. Right. Of and it so. wasn't. And so then I decided to do it for the weekly and the monthly. Okay. And sure enough, the weekly ran when I expected it to. That's fantastic. Which I think is, it's, it's Monday. I, I don't know if it does a Sunday or Monday. Um, I believe it. Yeah. Uh, Whenever. I've, and, I've, and then the monthly, of course it does it on the first. Right. And it, it all, it does them all around, uh, I think 3 a.m. It kind of disperses them a little bit. So, as far as I can tell, what you suggested, Dave, um, shockingly,
1: <laughs> I know well, every now and then a blind squirrel
0: fight. Wait a minute. No, no, that's a family show. But a launch a launch control. Yeah, that did it. I uh, I had not really done much with a command. So uh, so I, I owe you one. Cool. Yeah, it, it seemed to work in my case. Good. So good. Good.
1: Uh, yeah. So yeah, if if you are running into, go ahead and if you're still running into a problem with this, go ahead and read this article at the X lab. It does explain this difference between sleep and, and shutdown and how launch D may not catch you up if there's the the wrong or right combination of, of both. Um, but it sounds like for, for John, you, and, and at least for the listener that reported it, that was, that was not the path, but again, worth mentioning because, uh, because it gets us there. So uh, Peter had this to say.
2: Hi, John, Dave, and Pete. This is uh, Peter from Wisconsin. Um, just a little comment on uh, the MacGeek app 302. Uh, currently listening to the section about maintenance scripts. Uh, John, you had said that you didn't know if it was a performance um, issue with not running scripts. I can tell you from personal experience that, yes, there is. Uh, at, uh, at the church I go to, we have a Mac that we use for the uh, multimedia systems, um, uh, songs and such. And I, uh, we normally sleep that machine because it's only used a couple of times a week. So I've, uh, I've installed Mac both Mac Janitor and Onyx to run those manuscripts. If we don't run them every week, uh, that computer will tend to restart every time you, you try to bring up a keynote presentation. Mm. Um, if they are run every week, then there's usually no issue until you get about the three-week mark, I and, mean, of course, you have to restart it. But um, just wanted to let you guys know this and uh, keep up the good work. Love the podcast.
1: Thanks, Peter. So, uh, yeah, you know, I think it depends on what you're doing with the machine at what point you'll notice that you know this, this, the, the non-running of these maintenance scripts uh, is causing you grief. So and I think rebooting regularly might stave some of that off because it's killing off these temp files you know, and that sort of
0: thing that are killed off when you reboot anyway. So Well, you know Dave, I'm I'm going to say here that I don't know if well, what's the phrase? Correlation is causation. Maybe that's not the right phrase here. You know what I'm talking about though. Yes. Because I looked at or you guided me to to the specifics here. So yeah. one thing that I did is, you know, I was scratching my head because I recall looking at these dot out files, which are in slash var slash log slash you know, either daily, weekly, or monthly dot out, is where the output of the shell scripts, and you led me to where the shell scripts are. Right. Um but looking at the output um it appears to me that it looks like it's essentially getting rid of files. So on the other hand, I can agree that some files, if they grow too large, then you are going to be talking a performance problem because they're just going to get monstrously huge and they get fragmentation and stuff like that. So it
1: sounds like, it sounds like for, uh, for Peter, whatever keynote is doing needs to have its, its stuff, you know, it's slate cleaned, whatever that is. So,
0: yeah. Okay. And I did see that one of the, you know, one of the options in the output file, it says, you know, getting rid of temporary files, right. Now, whether there's a Unix level or, you know, everybody puts their temp files in, in a certain place. So, uh, mm-hmm. all right. I, I got to dig into it more. You, you showed me these, it, it, you know, it, it, had me, uh, I, I was actually shocked when I looked at the, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, the, the whole, shell script because it's kind of like Greek.
1: Yeah. It's sort of it, back it, it, to that conversation we were having before all this stuff, all these maintenance scripts are doing, are running a bunch of commands at the Unix shell, Uh, At a prescribed time or hopefully at a prescribed time, but, but it's nothing, there's nothing magical about it in, and you can, you can, if you're willing to dig, you can walk through and figure out exactly what commands it's going to run and you could run them yourself. There's nothing stopping you. Uh, it, it's much simpler, of course, to just run periodic daily and let it do it for you. But, you know, if if, if there's one thing you need to do, you could go in there and figure it out and look in what it, whatever it is. Uh, Etsy periodic daily, I think, is is where that stuff lives. Right. And, you know, that would work, I guess, uh, I, you know. Again, if you want to dig into it, that's where this stuff is. So yeah, take a look in, I think technically on Mac OS X, it's in private Etsy periodic daily, but Etsy is mapped to that. So you just go to slash Etsy (gasps) slash periodic slash daily and Mm. and you're good to go. So yeah, right. All right. Uh, Rob, Rob, what do you have to say? Hello, Dave and John. This is Rob from Delaware. Thanks again for your wonderful podcast. I got a quick question for you. I have a early 2010 A MacBook Pro, 15-inch, with four gigs of RAM and a 500 gigabyte hard drive, making uh, considering upgrading to either an SSD or possibly upgrading the RAM Um, in the near term. I think the RAM is obviously the cheaper option. I believe the machine can take up to eight gigs. Will I see an appreciable performance improvement if I move to eight gigs and leave the standard hard drive in? Or should I wait, hold up my money, and keep four gigs, and try to go to a SSD drive at a later point? Uh, your opinions are greatly appreciated, and thanks again for your wonderful podcast. Take care. Thanks, Rob. So it's uh, it's funny, because I think you're asking this question of two people that have taken different paths to get to the same uh, spot eventually. I, uh, I had four gigs of RAM in my machine when I added the SSD, uh, and then... Literally just the other day on Friday, uh, I I put I, I went from four gigs to six gigs, uh, courtesy of Crucial, actually. They uh they they offered, they said, Hey, wait a minute, you know, you you should have more RAM in your computer. And I said, well, I, I agree. And so they sent me more RAM, which was very, very kind of them. Uh and so the difference between four gigs with a mechanical hard drive to four gigs with an SSD was monumental for me. Uh the difference and, 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 and even still, I mean, cause you know, Ram didn't change at that point. Uh, I was noticing that, you know, I was still paging out and, and running out of Ram regularly every day. So I knew at some point I had to go when my machine maxes out at six and that's, that's what we did with, uh, with crucial. Uh, but, uh, but you know, paging out wasn't so bad when I was on the SSD. Cause of course it happens much, much faster. Today was the first day that I ran my MacBook Pro, uh, which is my main machine down in the office with this, this, the full six gigs of RAM. And I noticed a little bit of a difference, but I was hyper aware of it. Um, it's certainly nice to see that my machine is not paging out. And I, I you know, the biggest impact of it so far is that I know that I'm not paging out because now I see my machine sitting at about using maybe five and a quarter gigs, but still quite a bit free. Whereas I used to use, you know, 3.9 gigs and there was, you know, just a little bit free uh, all the time, which meant I was paging constantly. And my page file by the end of the day would be, you know, up into several gigs. Whereas today, Mm -hmm. yeah, today it was, you know, I think it was, I think it maybe jumped to 256 megs and that was it. But there was very, very, very few page outs uh, with the six gigs. So again, you know, thanks for uh, thanks to, to Sam and everybody at crucial for taking care of me on that. I, I, I can't say thank you enough because it's fantastic. So, um, but, uh, but yeah, so both help. And if you can do both, Rob do both, but my advice would be if you've got to pick between one or the other, do SSD first from a speed uh, and user experience uh, standpoint, I think you're gonna. I think you're gonna do uh, do much better with the SSD, but it is more yeah. expensive.
0: So, yeah, I'm gonna violently disagree with you. Okay, good. Well, people just love it when we do that. Right? I know it's great. <laughs> you're going down, no. man. You're going down. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I'm going What I'm gonna offer to Rob here is I, I don't think there's any one right answer for this, and I'm going I'm saying that. Yep. Uh, with a caveat here, it depends on how you use your machine. Not so much how you use your machine, but how your machine utilizes memory. And you brought up a very good point, Dave. The, the two things that you want to keep your eye on here to determine if you're going to get a benefit from getting more RAM is to keep your eye on both page outs. You know, with a utility like I like iStat menus. And I think you do, too, Dave. You, yep. you converted me. Um, but you, you can view that with the. Uh, Activity can well, well, yeah, even activity monitor Absolutely. for uh, you know the the zero dollar option. Yep. Um, and swap space. So if you notice those starting to grow over time and not getting small, or just if you see any activity in that area, then to me that's a hint that for what you use your machine for, you don't have enough memory and you right. should get more. Right. Um, the SSD. Um, I'm. I agree with you. In that. You know, it's uh, I think it would it you got to get to a certain point of RAM for the way you use the machine to get us a, a consistent level of performance.
1: Yeah, that's that's true. If Rob said he had two gigs of RAM and not four, I would have gone the other way. And not even knowing how he uses the machine, I would have said, get yourself to a minimum of four gigs of RAM. Don't you know, don't right. think about anything else. But in, it in my four? case, so it's like, right, eh. right.
0: Yeah. Well, in my case, the way I use my MacBook Pro. 4 was uh, I definitely noticed the difference between 4 and 6 based on the way I use the machine I noticed a lot fewer swaps and page outs when I when yeah. I do the uh, the increase and I'm seeing the same thing without question even just after one and yeah. and the SSD well I'm uh, currently reviewing one so we're we're going to see and I'm actually in the and it's actually a pretty nice one Samsung recently introduced something and it's uh um as far as I can tell, uh, the one thing we, we talked a bit about power, Dave, these guys yeah. seem to have made a real breakthrough because I looked at their power consumption on this and, and we made the statement before, which I think in general is accurate, but these guys are drawing like 0.4 watts in operation and 0.2 watts in standby. It, it's much and lower how, than I've how seen. How much
1: does a typical hard drive draw? Uh,
0: typical hard drive from what I've seen, you're, you're talking like the one that I have, I, I think you're talking, uh, you know, two watts or so. Really? So we're talking, yeah. Wow. So these guys, now Samsung, as you know, I mean, Samsung, from what I recall, makes a lot of the memory chips that are used in a lot of the SSDs, though you may not know that unless you right. crack the thing open, which I right. certainly don't recommend. So um, so I'm going through the process right now. It's in an external case, which uh, I would not recommend because actually based on my test right now, it, it connected by a USB interface. Yeah. Uh, it's it's uh, the, my current upgraded hard drive is doing better.
1: It Doing better in what way?
0: Uh, throughput in nearly every situation. Well, sure, okay, but how about boot time? Uh, boot time was not substantially changed. Okay. Or not. I, okay. okay. No. Now again, the bottleneck, and and I saw no. The bottleneck is the USB interface. Now once I put it on my SATA <laughs> interface, then we're talking. Then I'm I'm sure it's going to blow away. Uh the, the mechanical I, hard drive. I'm curious were, because I mm-hmm. did the
1: same thing. You know, I started with the SSD on the, on USB and lived with it for like a month before I put it inside. And I saw the difference immediately on the SSD mm. externally uh, and, and didn't notice much of a user experience oh. difference, moving it in speeds for
0: sure, doing tests or whatever, but I'm just talking about real world use. It's, it was about the same. Oh, I understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we haven't had the SmackDown yet. I mean, the, the I've given you some of the numbers here. Yeah. But when I went from the 250 gig right. to the 500 gig of the Hitachi uh, drive, the, the other one, of course, that the yeah. machine came with. So I basically got the same class of drive. But they, uh, I would say it roughly doubled the performance of the drive. They made okay. quite uh, a few advances since I bought the machine with that drive. So I think that's why, that's why you're I'm seeing, seeing that, it. in that yeah. this is a higher end. This is probably at the top of the heap though we're going to talk about something in just a moment, but this is at the top of the heap, I think of mechanical drives. So that's why I'm, I'm seeing that discrepancy, but once you get it on the SATA interface, which of course you're talking three gigabits versus 480 megabits, uh, right? Then, then you're talking, right? So.
1: Right. Cool. All right. Uh, so hopefully that answers that let's, uh, let's quickly, is this is I think it's possible to do this quickly. Let's see what, uh, what Mike has to ask A Follow up from last show still.
3: Hey, John and Dave. This is Mike from Newburyport, Mass. Um, I was just listening to your show 302. By the way, congratulations on your 300th. Thanks, man. Um, and you were talking about SSD drives and speeds and read writes and all that good stuff. And I had a question about the hybrid drives that are out there that are sort of part SSD, part mechanical drive. Um, I have a late 2008 MacBook Pro 15-inch um, with, a I think, a 350 gig drive in it. I'm not quite sure the size. Anyway, sure. I'm expecting it to die any time now because that's what hard drives do. And, of course, I have a super-duper backup and a Time Machine backup and lots of other backups because you guys have made me so paranoid. Excellent. Um, but that's a good thing. But I was wondering if you could talk about these hybrid drives, and and, uh, obviously the advantage is that they are much less expensive than an SSD drive, and I can get one of a comparable or hopefully larger size than the hard drive I currently have in my MacBook Pro. Uh, And if you have any experience with these drives, I know uh, OWC has one or several. Um and I was thinking about going that route sort of as my in between from the SSD because I need the capacity um on my drive in my MacBook Pro.
1: All right. Uh so John, I'm going to let you answer this, but just to set some context here, hybrid mm-hmm. is a mechanical drive where the bulk of the the size, in fact, all of the size of the advertised size of the disk is represented Uh, in the mechanical, you know, standard spinning platter drive. But the hybrid part comes in where they put a not insignificant amount of flash RAM on the uh, controller board with the drive. And then the drive has some technology where it caches what it thinks you're going to need and tries to make that available for you in a much faster way than it would be if it had to go and seek this. From the uh, from the mechanical drive directly, so so with that,
0: go. I'm going to go, and so what I found is a, a review or a, an evaluation. So I think the drive we're talking here, one of the first people to market with this, it's the Seagate Momentus XT. Yeah, and it's a hybrid HDD. It's actually at Anand Tech. I hope I pronounced yep. that right. I think that's um,
1: AnandTech.com. You're talking about the site yes. that reviewed
0: it. Yep. Yeah, and I've I've seen some good reviews. These guys, you know, uh, well, whoever did it here, I think, did a fine review. And here's the thing: the the conclusion. So first off, the cost. And I'm looking at the cost here. Uh, they may be a little dated, but the cost here from the Momentus XT. So we're talking if we look between two fifty gigs and five hundred gig drives, the cost of these drives range what they list here from one hundred thirteen bucks to one hundred fifty six. So okay. you're definitely talking less. So they're definitely more than a mechanical hard drive. Maybe about twice as much, um, yeah, but especially here. Like for example, yeah. 500 gigs for 150 dollars is a little pricey. But a 500 gig SSD, from what I've seen, oh. it, you're talking about 500 bucks at oh, least, no. 800 bucks or more. Okay, yeah, yeah, right. So, so they're definitely in the price. And based on their tests here, uh, I think the answer is. I mean, they they did one test here that was, and they pretty much fall pretty squarely. Between the performance of an SSD and the performance of the best mechanical hard drive, which Seagate makes one of those. So bang bang for your buck, this is the way to go. Uh, I would say if uh, I would choose this, if your need for capacity is greater than your need for performance, because it's right. going to give you better performance than a mechanical drive. But you're going to get a lot more bang for the buck as far as the number of gigabytes you're going to get for the money that you're spending. So it's a really clever, and you know the funny thing is, reading this, Dave, the the amount of memory that they put on this is not a lot. I think it's um four gigabytes of, yeah, it's four of gigs high or performance gigs or something. Yeah, right. Which is not a heck of a lot, but then no. so they must have a, a pretty you know decent algorithm. So I think out of the box, the thing will operate pretty much the same as a mechanical drive. But then it gets smart. It starts basically looking at as any cache does, you know, how what data you're reading. Mode, or, or it says, hey, have I seen this data before? Oh, I have. Well, I'm going to pull it from this really, really, really fast memory versus this you know, order of magnitude slower right. hard drive mechanism. And eventually it gets smart enough. And, and assuming that you use it as a typical user, then you eventually, as you use it more and more, you will see better performance. You know, I want to see about getting one of those drives
1: because the 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 test I want to run is very specific to... To to my setup, but but I but I think is common for many Mac users, the two places, three places where I notice and 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 thank my lucky stars for having this SSD in the machine are boot up time. Right. But I don't boot up that often. You know, the, the reality is. But but along those same lines is when I launch multiple apps, I've gotten in the habit of being able to click on five icons in my dock and and have my machine actually respond to me while those apps are launching. When I do that on this iMac here in the studio, like I do when I come up and I launch mail, Safari, Skype, you know, audio hijack pro and Yojimbo, because that's what I need to have open when we're going to do the podcast. Uh, it, this machine it literally is unresponsive for, you know, three to five minutes while all of those things fire up. Okay. Um, so, so that's, you know, essentially one thing, the launching of, of apps. I'm curious if that gets better, but, but really, where I really notice it is when Time Machine is running, um, because when Time Machine is doing a backup and I'm on a mechanical drive, I, you know, it's the, one of the most frustrating experiences because the machine is slow, uh, it, you know, it's, it's, it's lagging. The same is true of Dropbox because Dropbox is doing something similar to Time Machine where it's going through and indexing files and copying and moving things around. Uh, and I guess the same could be said about Mobile Me Sync.
0: So I, want I was going to say, that's one of your favorites, especially when it happens on the machine that we <laughs> use for the podcast. Yeah. I know because you start cursing. Right. Like, oh, right. Why is it doing? Why it is it
1: doing this? Why now? But you know, with the SSD, I don't care. It, those are the times mm-hmm. when I just don't notice it because the, there, there is almost no latency. So it, it works very, very well. So I'm curious if the, the hybrid drive would solve that problem. It's, if the caching algorithm is smart enough, it certainly could. Um, so that, that would be the, the situation where I'd really be curious to test it out. So maybe I'll, I'll give, see, get a call and see what, uh, see what they See what they say. Cause tr- trying it, frankly, in this machine, the one that I podcast in would be a perfect test bed for, uh, for that answer. So, um,
0: because yeah, no, you know, no, no, I don't have to hear you cursing, uh, when, yeah. you know, yeah. Mobile B starts thing. Uh,
1: thing. You, you know, the, the reality is sometimes when John starts talking and he, and he cuts out now, sometimes it's just a Skype thing and there's, you know, a network issue and there's nothing I can do about that. But other times I'll forget and John will start talking and he'll mention something and I'll say, Oh, I want to look it up in Safari. And if I go to Safari and do something while John's talking and it's coming in over Skype, his audio gets it, it you know, there's little pops. It's not, it, it. you know, he's totally intelligible, but I know you folks know what I'm talking about. So so, it, you know, I have to, like, sit on my hands while I'm listening to John so that I don't mess with the computer while he's, uh you know, while he's talking. So anyway, it would be it would be interesting to see if an SSD in this machine, you know, er- eradicated those issues. Now, I'm already recording the audio to a, a network drive, so we're not dealing with any problems uh, here for that. But anyway, that's that's my thought. One last thing before we go Uh, pilot, Pete wasn't feeling well today, so he has not joined us, but he had a couple of things to add about last show. And while we're in our follow-up section here, I wanted to throw them in uh, about Mark's question, uh, sharing the photos across the internet and then how to get them to the Apple TV. Uh, Pete says there's an option on the Apple TV to choose any or all the photos in your iPhoto library. So if you put your iPhoto libraries. In the Dropbox, uh, then point your Apple TV uh, to see any photos you want. It works great. So that uh, that Dropbox solution may very well help. Uh, Another option we didn't mention uh, is Flickr, which is fully integrated directly with the Apple TV. So for Mark's question, uh, instead of syncing to their. The grandparents' iPhoto library, which then would pump to the Apple TV. If Mark simply published to a Flickr stream and had the Apple TV set to display from that, totally takes the uh, you know any management on the grandparents' computer out of the mix. So that's uh, that's that's interesting stuff to me. So thanks, Pete. Always good for uh, for a tip, and we appreciate
0: that. Ah. There's the band. You got to tell them off? It's been a long show. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Where the heck have they been?
1: Uh, let's see. You can contact us by writing to us at feedback at MacGeekGab.com. Dave, I'm almost positive that you said feedback at MacGeekGab.com. No, 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 no. I said feedback at MacGeekGab.com. You can send us, of course, text, email, pictures, audio files, videos, whatever it is you want. We'll get it. And Cookies? Uh, yeah, we love cookies. It's Christmas time.
0: Someone you know? sent us cookies. I think someone sent us a pie, too. That's right. Yes. They sure. did. I they know. did. But you know, Dave, that's not the only way to get in touch with us. You know how you can get in touch with us? You how? can pick up the telephone. Why? Well, you know, to make it feel good. Okay. I mean, you can pick up the telephone and you can call. Call us at 206 666 geek, which is Dave
1: 4335. Uh, you can see the show notes at MacGeekGab.com. You can leave us iTunes comments and you can find us on Twitter. I am Dave Hamilton. John is John F. Braun. Pilot Pete, who's not feeling well, is, as you might guess, Pilot Pete. MacGeekGab on Twitter lists when the uh, shows and show notes are published. And Mac Observer, of course, lists uh, all the stuff for TMO, including when the show itself is published. We'd like to thank Michael Johnston from the We Have Communicators podcast for converting this show to AAC. And of course, we'd like to thank Cashfly for all the bandwidth that they provide to get the show from us to you. The podcast marketplace for December includes the A2 desktop speakers from Audio Engine, Yojimbo and Yojimbo iPad from Barebone Software, Disc Label from Smile Software for making all those cool DVDs to send, or uh, to, labels for the cool DVDs to send to your relatives, and a Notebook from Circus Ponies all through the Backbeat Media Podcast Network. And that's it. We will uh, be doing a premium show later this week. Get yourself a Christmas gift. Sign up. 25 bucks gets you an extra two episodes per month for six months. Plus, access to all the archives and the warm, fuzzy feeling that you get when you support your two favorite geeks at this time of year. And our sincere appreciation to everybody.
0: Well, it gives me a warm, fuzzy feeling too, Dave. But, you know, when you have that warm, fuzzy feeling, you want to make sure that you don't get caught.
2: made up.